Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. I am so happy to have a fairly long-term friend with us today, and that's Dina Chris. How are you, Dina? I'm so great, Margot. It's so wonderful to talk with you. Uh, it's been too long since I've seen you in person. Yeah, it might be a while longer, but we'll I see. Know. We'll keep our fingers crossed. So I met you at an improv festival, but before we get to that, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, a little bit where you grew up and your family. and. Oh, sure. Uh, well, I am a born and raised Massachusetts gal, uh, grew up on a military base, uh, and then like most children of the military do, I, I went to school for theater <laughs> uh, and radio and fell in love with comedy and then moved to Los Angeles because that's what one does. Um, came back to Boston a few years later and have been uh, working pretty steadily in, in improv and teaching improv and musical improv ever since. Well, you are one of the best musical improvisers I know. And did oh, you think you. a lot in high school? Were you in choirs and things like that? Yeah, I grew up doing community theater because uh, there there was no improv classes for kids when I was a kid, at least nowhere near me. So all I knew was that I loved singing and I loved being in that group of people. So I started doing community theater in like third grade, you know, some production of Oliver or Annie or something. And, uh, and then did that most of my life. And it wasn't until high school that I discovered writing comedy. So I started doing sketch comedy in high school. And then um, I went to Emerson College, which is a, a big comedy school. So that's where I discovered uh, stand-up comedy and improv and made comedy writing my minor there and started, you know, doing stand-up, very bad stand-up all over Boston, uh, and uh, realized that stand-up was too much of a solo sport for me, and just really leaned into the idea of, of improv as a team sport. Um, yeah, so always the theater kid, not because of the, I, I, I'm not a theater kid who loves applause, and I was actually very shy off stage, so I didn't like to be the center of attention, but I loved the idea that we were making something. Yeah, which I think is what I still love about improv. That's tremendous. And your parents were supportive? They were ridiculously supportive. They are, <laughs> they are not theater people um, in any way. Um, I think my, yeah, I, neither of them would ever want to do this. Uh, and, and from the time I was tiny, I mean, my mother literally forced me on stage from from probably the age of, of three or four, she just, she believed very fully that if you have a gift, you you should share it with the world. And so she would bring me to every church group and uh, military group on base and anyone who would be a room full of maybe more than 10 people, she would bring me and make me sing. Uh, and uh, I hated it, but it definitely instilled in me the idea that, that I think, I think I, I think I agree with her that that if you have a gift, you should share it. And if you can do something that will make people happy or inspire them in some way to want to be creative themselves, you should do it. Yeah. And they both, I mean, I look back and I think I am so fortunate to have had two parents who said, you want to study theater and radio, go for it. Um, I think a lot of parents don't ever give their kids that opportunity. And, uh, you know, going to Emerson absolutely changed my life and made me even more focused of, about what I wanted to do. And, and that's because of them. And they're both very funny, not in a performance way, but my mom is bitingly sarcastic and my dad is, is dry and sardonic. So it's a, it's a nice combination to have grown up with. 
It's fantastic. And what a beautiful story. I wish more parents were like that and really support I know. And encourage their kids. Me too. They really do. That's fantastic. So I first met you, I'm pretty sure it was 2000 and could have been 11 or 2012. Time gets away mm -hmm. from me sometimes. But you were performing at, with Will Luria's group at Florida Studio Theater for an improv festival. And first of all, That's right. I saw you perform form I was like oh my gosh what is this because I've been doing improv only for about a year then but this whole idea of musical improv was like and then I took classes with you and Mike Dakota and then, yeah. then you came yeah. down to our area a couple of times and did workshops locally here in southwest Florida and right. so uh, oh it was wonderful and I just I really love musical improv I don't get to do it much but I'm trying to inject it a little bit more in my classes but you both yeah. are wonderful teachers I mean he's a brilliant Thank piano you. player and, and you're yeah. just so much fun to watch and be with oh thank you so much it is a uh, musical improv I didn't discover until oh maybe five years into, into my more, my more serious improv, um, life. Uh, certainly I had been noodling with improv for a long time, but once I started doing it professionally, we would do a little bit of musical improv, you know, a short form game here and there, um, or, or make up a, a little song, but definitely the first time I, I did an entirely musical improv show, um, I was not supposed to be in that show that night. I was there for something else. They had someone call out. My friend literally grabbed me and said, we're doing a show in two minutes, pulled me on stage. I didn't know anything. I'd never performed with them, never rehearsed with them, didn't know the format, didn't know what I was doing. But uh, he just literally took my hand and said, trust me and pulled me on stage. And the moment we started singing, I thought, this is a magical thing unlike anything I've ever done before. And I want to do this all the time. <laughs> Um, and it really became my first, my first love when it comes to improv, not because I think it's, um, you know, better than what people are doing in, in, you know, non-musical improv and more traditional improv. But for me, I think it was just the combination of all the things I love and the idea that you are taking such a risk with a group of people right beside you for me in a way that is, is different than standard improv. You have to listen to each other more keenly. You have to be aware of the musicians. You have to be aware of everything happening around you. And it's just, every sense is, you know, tuned up to a thousand percent. I just love it. So, so it's, you know, I think, I think when, you know, when you say you'd never seen anything like it before, I think that's true for a lot of people. And for you to say uh, that I'm a joy to watch, I thank you. And I, I think it's not, um, it's just because the joy I'm having on stage while I'm doing it, I can't suppress. I'm not good at hiding feelings. So that's, that's what's coming out of me 100% when I'm on stage is this excitement of we're doing a thing. Look at this thing <laughs> it's so beautiful and i love some of the exercises and warm-ups we do and you know one of the things i like was the kind of a mind melding singing game we'd be in a circle and do different notes or sounds i don't know what it's called i'm mm -hmm. calling it a mind meld right now um but that was great and um i do i do love the do run run song and that's the only thing i really teach today is the okay. do run run song because it's so much fun and the um irish drinking song so those are the yeah. two i've remained able to do but you have such a vast array of games and exercises to help people because so many people think they can't sing now i could say to you i don't really have a great voice but it doesn't matter in musical improv I mean, it's nice when they do have Correct. a great voice, but. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, like icing on the cake or, or a cherry on a sundae. If you happen to be an improviser that has uh, a, a good singing voice, if you grew up singing, I think, I think it helps. Um, I don't think the audience expects it, nor do they 
necessarily value it as much as we think they do or as much as we fear they won't, right? So as an improviser, and certainly I've I've met many who say I could never do that, that being musical improv. Sure you can. And, and Michael always tell you it's, it's the same thing that you're using in your regular improv skills, right? It's just heightened. So you're listening more intently. You're having to communicate more clearly. You're having to focus your ideas. You're having to use your emotions in a way that maybe as a, as a typical improviser, you can get away with not emotionally committing. As a musical improviser, you have to emotionally commit. And if you're doing all those things, then the audience will enjoy whatever way your character is singing. You just have to fully commit to it. Um, and I think that's the biggest hurdle that people have to get over is, is the idea, well, I'm not a trained singer or a good singer, so I shouldn't do, do it. Um, there, honestly, and you're working collaboratively and you're giving it your all, then the audience will love it. They do, and they do. And so I have to tell you, if I can, I have to tell you my, 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 my Irish drinking song story. You mentioned oh, yeah. the Irish drinking song. One of my favorite moments uh, of all of my, my many years in improv was uh, I was at a theater. We were doing a fundraiser. It was like a 35 hour marathon. And uh, Laura Hall, who has become a, a good friend of mine, sent along a video um, and we, we didn't really know what, what it was going to be. And it turned out, Laura Hall, sorry, from whose line is it anyway, um, who plays Irish drinking song, you know, all the time for a living. So she sent along a video where she recorded herself and her uh, husband, Rick, who's a brilliant improviser uh, who started at Second City. Uh, so they sang all the setups for Irish drinking song. And then my job was to have to without hearing it beforehand, do all the payoffs. So they were setting up rhymes that then I would have to fill in for the video live on stage. And it was, uh, turns out we're all using video now in interesting ways to try to do improv. But, you know, this was five or six years ago and it, it just felt like, again, another like, oh, this is a big risk we're taking. I have no idea if it's going to work or not. And will the timing work out because they recorded this? Um, and it was joyful and you know, the audience is willing to go with you when the video doesn't quite work out or uh, you're clearly surprising yourself as you're, as you're singing. Um, and it, those, are, those are the moments that I think are the most fun as an improviser, when you're surprising yourself on stage. And certainly that was one of those moments in a game that certainly everyone's played a million times and you think, how could this be new? It was a fun way to, to make that new. Well, Laura Hall is tremendous, and she and her husband have um, a CD series, uh, karaoke kind of. Um, yeah. We use that a yep. lot in classes with kids with autism and other classes. Yeah. And it's just great. I love her. And Nancy Howard Walker is another one I love a lot, too. Um, yeah. 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 So, uh, and Mike turned me on to those books. I, and they there come with these in them. It's really nice. But mm -hmm. the idea of Committing fully. I mean, that's an improv thing to commit fully. And I think that's one of the gifts we get from learning to improvise, to really commit to something and to share our emotions. Yeah. And like I said, I think that a lot of people, when they start improvising, believe that the most important thing in improv is to be quick-witted or to be funny. And that'll get you far in a lot of shows. For me, the most important thing in improv is to be willing to commit emotionally. I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do, and especially for a lot of comedians, people who, you know, who value themselves as being funny rather than being a performer or an actor or an artist. And I think the best improvisers are not necessarily the folks who get the big laugh lines every time, but rather the people who are willing to be vulnerable enough to have moments on stage with their scene partners and be willing to cry on stage and with their scene partners and just be fully present. And I will go to a show and laugh uh, at someone who's, you know, the quick-witted guy who's ready to pull the scene out from someone else or get a laugh at someone's expense. I will laugh at that but I will never think that person's a brilliant improviser. For me, the brilliant improvisers are the ones who are 
you know, making meaningful eye contact and bringing the audience into a, a real emotional experience. But I, you know, there are all different kinds of improvisers. Um, I definitely lead from emotion uh, in my life and in my <laughs> improv. Well, definitely. And I, I spoke about humor and play for many years before I even got into improv. And mm -hmm. I would always tell my audiences that jokes are the lowest form of humor. And the best humor is the unintended humor of everyday life. Right. And yeah, it's truth and comedy, right? It's, yeah. it's a slice of our lives that we can show to the world and then let them draw the lines about what is universal for them and what is funny in that for them. And did you have any mentors or teachers that really impacted you a lot? Well, that's a great question. Um, like, when I was growing up, I, I went to Catholic school <laughs> growing up, and there's not a lot of room in comedy there. Uh, and it wasn't until high school that I had a teacher that uh, was actually, he was my AP psychology teacher and my, my AP US history teacher. And he recognized that my brain worked a little bit differently than other people's. And so for for my AP psychology assignments, instead of doing what other people had to do, he would give me like, like creative writing assignments that would be um, like the, the prompt would be write a 10 page paper and the prompt would be uh, the three little pigs, what happened the next day? And then I would write these papers inventing the world of, of what happened after these fairy tales ended. And it wasn't until years later that I realized, well, that's an improv game but writing, you know? Um, and he was definitely the first person to say to me, I think, I, I think you are meant to be in comedy. And I, you know, he didn't know what that meant. He's, you know, a high school teacher in the middle of nowhere, but he definitely was the first person to sort of spark that for me. Um, and then at Emerson, I was very, very lucky to work with, um, a teacher there named Mike Bent, who's a um, stand-up comedian, uh, brilliant teacher. So most of the classes I took in comedy were with him. Um, he, was, he was like big claim to fame. Uh, he will hate me for saying this, but one of his big claims to fame was he was on, back in the 80s, they would do this Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian specials on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he was on one of those. Um, he was on one of those. Now he's um, he's a touring stand-up and a magician who performs at the White House. Uh, he performed oh. at the White House every year of the Obama administration. Anyway, brilliant guy. Uh, taught me how to write sitcoms and stand-up and sketch comedy. And um, and then in college, I worked with a lot of really wonderful people who are now decided to go into comedy professionally in a way that I didn't. So people who were writers for Samantha Bee and Colbert Report and a friend of mine created and starred in The President Show on Comedy Central. Um, so I got to be inspired by not only teachers, but a lot of my peers who were just doing things that were, were innovative and um, weren't afraid to take the chance, you know? Um, yeah. And then as far as once I started actually studying improv, um, like actually, you know, more than, more than the little bit you learn in, in a theater program in, in college, which at the time was very little. Um, man, I've just, I've had so many wonderful teachers. I think, um, you know, the, the folks that everyone was excited to work with, Dave Rosowski, when I had my first workshop with him, it's like, what is this? You take this very seriously. This is different than any way I've learned this before. Um, and he would not let me get away with anything, which I needed and loved. I, um, as you, as you know, Margot, I tend to use my hands a lot when I talk. And um, he was the first person to sort of call me on it and say, every, every movement is purposeful and stillness is valuable and don't be afraid of silence. Um, so that was definitely not anything I had heard before. Um, and the first time I, first class I ever took with Susan Messing, she scared me so much that I was like, oh, yeah. I don't know if I should do it <laughs> and, anymore. But, but then we became friends and uh, I, I realized that, again, she wasn't going to let me get away with anything either, right? I was falling back on 
being safe and that's that can't be what improv is and and I had those two very early on in my sort of um as I was dipping my toe into professional improv and I think I'm lucky that I I got to work with them when I was a new improviser um and certainly meeting Susan you know as a she was one of the first women I had met who was teaching improv um back in the day uh i make it sound like i'm you know 300 years old um but it was you know women in improv have come a long way um in i guess a seemingly short amount of time but when i first started there weren't there was one woman i knew who was a director and an instructor and everyone else was every everyone else was was a guy um and so it, it, i guess that also inspired me to see that Susan was incredibly successful and incredibly well respected and um, it made me you know once you see someone like you doing the thing you want to do it 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 sort of reiterates that you can do it and so I think meeting her made me think oh I could yes I want to be a performer but more than anything I want to be a teacher. Yeah, she is brilliant and lovely and so funny and I just adore Susan. We did a podcast a few years ago with Rachel, and she's just amazing. So, yeah. So when you... Uh, Rachel's many, also wonderful. I love the two oh, of them. Tremendous, tremendous person. So how many years have you been actually doing improv, you know, in traveling around and doing improv? Yeah. Um, I started doing it professionally back in... And when I say professionally, I mean, like, someone's actually paying me to do it rather than uh, what I had been doing for many years with my goofy friends um, who are lovely by the way but no one was pay paying us to do anything um, so I started doing it professionally I, I would it must have been like the end of 2003 uh, and uh, you know started at first performing mostly um, short form shows uh, I was asked to be a part of a uh, the Improv Boston Touring Company, um, which is where I had taken classes there. And uh, so that was my first sort of foray into getting paid to do improv. Um, and then eventually I, I, I ran their comedy school and their touring company for, for many years. Um, and it was with them that I started traveling. So Will, uh, who you know very well, uh, sort of tapped me to go on the road with him for quite a few years. So that was my first um, introduction to festival life. Improv festival life was, was back then. Um, and, and what I realized from teaching my very first improv class was that the, the point of connection where you, you can sense from someone that they've had a moment of discovery or when you you help them fall in love with this art form that is that is the thing i chase so for for a lot of improvisers they're chasing the laugh or the applause and for me i'm i'm chasing that point of discovery being able to connect this for other people being able to make them want to do this more being able to help them have more joy in their in those two hours or or you know in that day, I, I think that's the thing that makes me want to do this work. Because everyone can do it, right? This isn't an art form that is for the elite or for the wealthy or for uh, the, you know, uber talented actor or, you know, whatever we think it is. This is an art form that can truly be accessible for anyone. They just have to be willing to take the risk. You know, absolutely, taking the risk and the fact that we can all do it, we start off with there are no mistakes and no failures, which is very right. hard to get. But when people do get it, that frees us so much from those thought processes. Am I doing it right? Did I say the right thing? You know, and you mentioned the, uh, the short form, and I, I took at least two classes with you on short form, and or maybe three even, and they were always great, you know, and people kind of would put down short form. But Thank you. Yeah, Enjoy those classes. They were terrific. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't get me started, Margo. I will, I will talk for hours about why that's wrong. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, it's, it's everything you're doing in long form, but faster and more, um, more concentrated, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, um, the difference between soup and demi-glace, right? So like, <laughs> if you think of long, long form as a big pot of deliciousness, and then for me, short form is all of that boiled down into its essence and man, a spoonful of that delicious. So I don't, I don't, I never understand when people get hung up on my form is better than this form or, you know, Harold is better than the deconstruction or musical improv is better than, you know, short form or whatever. It's, we're all doing the same thing. It's just slightly different um, mechanics in, in how we do it. So we should, and, and what we do, by the way, what we teach at its core in improv is supporting one another. So shouldn't we all be super supportive and excited about what we're all doing? I never understood the weird, like, short form, so weird, it's lame, that's not. <laughs> well, there's some people who rigorously follow one school or another, but there's so much great things out there to explore. And discovery is such a big word and so important. Uh, watching yeah. people make a discovery on stage in a scene or in a game or whatever. And yeah. that's part of the joy of teaching, I think. Yeah, I think so. And and for me, like I was saying, it's, it's the discoveries. I love the discoveries that we make together on stage. For me, the, the discovery, for me, uh, the, the discovery I made when I realized, oh, this is, this is beyond what we do on stage. This, this can be helping with so many things off stage in the real world that are not this show. This art form can be used in a way that can help a lot of different kinds of people, you know, and, and we talk about how everyone can do this work. And so I had that realization pretty early on because I was newer to improv than most people I was performing with. And so I think I was coming to it with a different, through a different lens. And when I started taking um, classes, you know, so I went to college and then I, I went and worked in the real world and had kids and was a grown up and, uh, and then was like, I miss being creative. So I started taking improv classes to sort of up, up my game and reconnect with that part of me. And when I started taking improv classes, I was a preschool teacher. And from week one, I walked out of there thinking, well, this is stuff I could do with my preschoolers tomorrow. Is anyone doing this? And I didn't know enough to think don't do that. And I, you know what I mean? Like you just try it because you don't know any better. And it just became for me a, a logical extension of what I can do on stage or in class can be brought into so many other settings. And I didn't even know there was a thing called applied improvisation. I didn't know there was a whole group of people doing that. Uh, turns out there's a whole network literally called the Applied Improv Network, um, which certainly would have, was much smaller back then. I just had never heard of anyone doing it. And so I was like, well, I'll just figure it out. So I started doing it with, with the preschoolers. And then when my son was in uh, probably first grade, he was experiencing some pretty severe bullying in school. And I thought improv can fix that. So I created an anti-bullying program um, that we took to schools all over Massachusetts. And then I thought, well, I feel like this could help with, uh, you know, folks who are living with dementia and their families. So I started doing that. I mean, I just, I, again, I, I was naive enough to think, why not? Let's just do it and see what happens. It's improv. How bad could it be? Um, and you, you know, in the mindset of an improviser, you take it, you, you try it, you take the risk and you tweak it as you go. And I've been very lucky to throughout my career, uh, be able to just sort of find people who were willing to let me try. So like the Cambridge school system in Massachusetts was like, your kids go here. You seem nice. You want to try this? Go ahead. Um, and I found a nursing home that was willing to say, sure, you seem responsible and professional. Come and try this thing. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it sort of became the through line of my career off stage, while more of my career on stage became musical improv. Um, my work off stage became more and more this um, this applied this applied improv work. So I I built corporate training programs to sort of pay the bills, and then was doing this other more um, more not that corporate training isn't meaningful, but this this work that meant more to me um, became more and more a part of, of what I was doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, again, I didn't, I didn't know anyone else who was doing it. I, it really would have been helpful to have a tribe that I could have turned to, to say, how are you doing this? Um, so I, you know, I think about if I were doing it now, how would I be doing it? I mean, if I were building it now, what would it, what would it end up, uh, what form would it have taken? Um, but you know, you figure it out as you go. And it just, it led to a lot of different school-based workshops and, um, and certainly the work that I'm doing now is a direct extension of, you know, what I started back, back in 2003. So it's, it's been a long road. Well, let's get into the work that you're doing now. Why don't you tell us right. a little bit about that? And it's very exciting to me, so. Yeah, uh, so now I work for, um, a school called Perkins School for the Blind, which is here in Massachusetts. It's the second oldest school for the blind in the world. Um, and uh, it's mostly a residential school um, for um, folks who are blind, visually impaired. And, and on the residential school side, it also serves a lot of students who have uh, other disabilities as well. So my job is to work with adults. So I work for a program called Career Launch at Perkins, and it is a program for adults who are blind and low vision, um, who are job seekers. So folks who could be working, um, but here's a, here's a terrible fact. The unemployment rate among the blind and visually impaired is 70%. And that was before the pandemic, before the crisis, 70%. So it's a really big problem. So these are folks who could be working, but are not given the chance to work because there's so much as unconscious bias. People who um, are sighted look at people who are blind and think you are, you are not capable of doing what I do, which just isn't true. So our program was developed to give folks who are blind or low vision sort of a, an equal playing field when they're going in for a job. And we concentrate on um, the field of customer success because those jobs exist everywhere in the world and because they're entry level um, and they can be the starting point to get into a company and build a career there. So we, it's a residential program. People come and live with us on campus intensive training uh, in different, like we teach them Salesforce and Excel and, you know, all the software they would need to know to work for a company. And then we teach them um, sort of customer success, career skills. And my job is to get to use improvisation to teach uh, all of those career readiness skills. So I'm working with the with our adults uh, and they're young adults so it's 18 to 29 is the age range we serve I'm working with them on communication skills interpersonal communication skills business communication skills how to nail the interview how to give presentations how to just be in a social setting you know for a lot of these adults they have not had the opportunity to just be in everyday conversation the way that you and I have so so they are often sold. They are often mainly communicating with their their parents or their you know their teachers. But they don't have you know. For a lot of us, we start working at you know fifteen or sixteen, and we build these skills over time. And these this population just doesn't have that opportunity. So they need a a lot of practice on things that we take for granted and. I'm able to use improvisation to, to help give them that problem solving skills where it's, it's a lot of fun and to be able to 
work with them in that way and be able to give them the chance to have sort of light and levity and laughter is very rewarding. Um, and it works, right? Like, you know, when, when you're using improvisation as a tool, it is, it is a way for them to absorb material much faster than if you were lecturing at them or um, having them sort of write about it. You know, it's, it's real world practice for the stuff they need. And then at the end of all of that, they do, uh, so after the training portion, we place them in internships in the Boston area uh, for about two months. And then um, we help them get jobs back in their um, home communities, whether that's in Massachusetts or, uh, you know, California, Arizona, wherever. That's just brilliant and beautiful. It's so brilliant. And I'm sure your students adore you and have so much fun while <laughs> yeah, learning. Good time. I bet you do. I, I bet you I do. I will say, we don't tell anyone that it's part of the program. So uh, it's, it's sort of a secret to them. And you, you say you're sure they love me. I will tell you that week one, I'm not sure they do. It is very hard uh, to get people who don't want to do improv to do improv. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, it is a risk. We're already asking them to take so many risks by be coming to this program and putting themselves out there and having to learn so much in such a short period of time. And then when, when I show up um, and have them, you know, start doing all these weirdo things, um, it, you know, it can be off. I can be off putting. Big Margo. Uh, I'm a lot. But the joy of, of the way we're doing it, and I always pride myself on this, is, you know, give me, give me that first 45 minutes with them and they will be sold on why this is fun and, and important. And I don't actually even tell them we're doing improv until after their first session. We're just going to do some stuff and all I ask is that you commit and, uh, and that it's going to feel weird and that it's supposed to. And I ease them in, um, and then at the end of that first session, I explain to them what improv is and that we just did it. And so now you don't have to be afraid of it, and <laughs> we're going to use that as a tool moving forward. Um, yeah, so it's I'm definitely, if you were to uh, sort of film that, that first session, the first 10 minutes of the first session, you would think she is not going to get anywhere with those people, but, um, you know. By the end of the hour, they're all laughing. Oh, that's good. So I'm really curious as to what kind of games, I'm thinking about working with people with different abilities. What kind mm -hmm. of games you would play or, or what you would do actually? Yeah, so that was, uh, I, love, I love the puzzle of applied improvisation and, and adapting games to different populations. And the good news is I had had a lot of experience doing that. So, you know, building, building, like I said, uh, sessions for folks who are living with dementia or folks who were brain tumor survivors and had different neurological, you know, were, were sort of non-neurotypical. Um, so this actually felt easier uh, than, than a lot of that. I, I do a lot of work also with, um, with kids and adults on the autism spectrum. Um, and so it, it felt similar to that because there's a social piece that uh, you have to sort of, you can't assume and have to build into this work. And then I had to go through the challenge of, well, how do I explain this now? Because they can't see me. So if I say to a room, circle up, probably sighted people are going to know when I'm standing there that they should come and circle around me. And so it wasn't so much about changing the games. It was more about changing how I was explaining them and changing how they were um, adapting things a little bit. So things that you would at first think, well, you could never do that. When I was designing it at first, I was like, well, you could never do zip zaps up. Turns out every class I've worked with who is blind or visually impaired crushes zip zaps up. They're incredible at it. They are better listeners. They are used to listening listening so intensely that 
they sailed through Zip Zap Zop faster than any corporate training group I've worked with or any professional improv group I've worked with. We rely on the visual. We rely on predicting what's going to happen next. They are willing to be in the moment and hear you and work as a team. I mean, it blew my mind. I literally cried the first time I did it with them because I, I, I was crying because I was proud of them and also because I realized I had been so wrong about what I thought they could do. And, you know, that's sort of the whole purpose of our program is to help people realize that these adults can do things we assume they can't. And I had done the same thing to them. I had assumed they couldn't do it. But if, if I'm being honest, I, we had so many other exercises that day I was like oh well I guess we'll just do this one and then they crushed it and I thought yep I just did the exact same thing to them that we're asking employers not to do um it was a really important moment for me and then it opened the door to basically every other improv exercise because I thought well if they can do that they can do everything else um they really love you know it, it and again I'm teaching corporate like training and job skills. So everything has to have, every exercise we're doing has to build toward, um, you know, a, a skill that they can use in their work. And so it's things like um, seven line story, they're incredible at. Again, they're so willing to, to hear each other. Um, everything that we think of as a standard improv game that I would teach in a, in a class to typically sighted people, I can teach to them. I just might have to adjust my directions around it or their around it, right? I, I would be reluctant to uh, put them in a room where they have to be. Um, I was trying to figure out a way to adapt. You know, the game, um, I probably wouldn't use it anyway, but um, uh, it, it used to be called Smelly, Sexy, Funny. Do you know this game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, there was a game that I was thinking that would be difficult to do the way that I've been taught it because it involves so much quick physicality where, like, you have to get away from this person. Or the game um, Protector Assassin where you choose someone who's, like, or some people call it friend or foe. You choose someone in the group that is um, your sort of protector and someone in the group that is sort of out to get you and you, your job in the game is to make sure your protector is always between you and your assassin. And it's, it's a nonverbal game. So like that would be a game that would seemingly be not a great fit for folks who are blind and visually impaired because it's nonverbal and it's a lot of quick movement. Um, and so, you know, that wouldn't be at the top of my list of things to play with them, but virtually everything else that I have taught to typically sighted folks work in this environment, um, which is wonderful because those are the games that I love to teach and that work. Well, what a gift you're giving them and empowering people who, you know, maybe lost faith in themselves because of the way the sighted community treated them. Um, and there could have been yeah. other, you know, other issues. Yeah. So what a gift that must be such a joy for them. And, and um, are you now during this uh, point in our lives today in April of 2020, are you able to do any online work with them at all or not? So that's a great question. And I think, you know, you and I having improv brains immediately go to how can we adapt this? How can we keep working? How can we continue to do this? Um, and I think right now in, in the crisis we're in globally, it's the folks who are wired for improv that are able to be doing the quick work that needs to be done, right? We're able to say, let's just do it. Uh, so right now we're in the process of figuring out how we can take our program, which is like I said, typically residential and move it online and then even faster than that, because that will take some time for sure. Even faster than that, figure out how can we serve the blind and visually impaired community immediately, like today, what can we do today? 
and so I definitely, you know, I work at a school with a lot of academics who are very used to research and, you know, you, you have to test something a thousand times before you can bring it to, uh, to the classroom because you can't, you can't make mistakes, right? And I am from the school of thought of, uh, let's try it, let's try it, let's try it, let's try it. What, what is the harm? Let's try it. Um, and, uh, and so it's been really interesting working with folks who are wired very much the opposite way from me to figure out how do we work together as a team to get this going as quickly as possible and to make sure that it has merit something to do something. So um, we're hoping that in the next two weeks, we're able to start offering online content to a wider audience. The, we did have to send our, our residential students home um, back in mid-March, and it was heartbreaking for all of us. We've been working with them um, since they went home. So we're talking with them every day and we're, we're supporting them in their process. And we had to, um, we had to do away with the traditional two month internship that they would have done in the Boston area because companies just didn't um, uh, remotely. And so now we're trying to move, skip the internship phase with them and move to direct hires with companies that are willing to um, have remote workers. The challenge there is giant unemployment rate right now. Companies don't have the capacity to hire anyone, but we're not deterred. We're, we're looking into, you know, folks who could be national um, employer partners. And we're, like I said, we're in contact with our students every day to help them still build skills. My my want right now is uh, I want to be able to help more than just the folks who are living with us on campus. And I think there's an opportunity now for everyone who is, um, who is having to rethink what they do, which so many of us are. I think there's an opportunity now to be able to serve a wider audience. And for us, um, being able to say, okay, so what can we offer the world, right? What can we offer people who are blind and visually impaired all over the world in a way that our residential program couldn't have? So this crisis, I think and hope, will become a way for everyone to rethink their impact and for everyone to realize that what they're doing could reach more people than what it, than, than before this happened. And then you know, I also think hopefully it'll get people comfortable with the idea that we have to adapt quickly <laughs> because everyone is right now. Um, and my biggest wish is from the employment side, because like I said, there's, there's just such a huge unemployment rate in the blind and visually impaired community. And now, unfortunately, we're going from a, a wonderful job market to a terrible job market worldwide. As companies are needing to rethink what employment looks like and how many jobs could be remote versus, you know, on site and what is their workforce going to look like the size and scope. I hope that as they rebuild, they're thinking about rebuilding universally, meaning if you have to rethink how your jobs are structured anyway, take the time to make sure they're including everyone and take the time to make sure that your new workforce when you come back is diverse and strong and that it includes people of all stripes, not just uh, the, the same kind of person you hired before. We have an opportunity to really include um, adults living with disabilities in the workforce in a way that we didn't before. So that's my big wish is, um, when when folks start hiring again, that they can understand that the jobs they have could be done by people not only who who are blind or visually impaired, but you know different kinds of disabilities. Their jobs could be done by those people. So include them as you're rebuilding your workforce, please. Uh, yeah, that was a long answer to your question, but that's sort of what I get up thinking about every day now or uh, lose sleep thinking about every night now. <laughs>
<laughs> well, the idea of inclusion is one of the principles we have in improv, and you're doing a fantastic job in sharing your wisdom, humor, and energy with people who really are, really need it today. And I am so glad we were able to find this time to chat together, reconnect, and I just admire you so much. It, it just makes me feel really oh, good just looking at you and talking with you right now, Dina. So, <laughs> I know, it's so joyful to be able to see you. It's the, you know, the one thing about this crisis is we've all gotten a lot more comfortable uh, connecting in this way. And like, I think about, as I said, you know, at the beginning, it's been way too long since we've been in the same room, you and I. And yet I feel like I'm able to connect with you this way. And so I hope that the world remembers that we can, we can still stay close even when we're not able to be together and uh and i hope we get to you and i get to do this more often I maybe see. not record it but you know yeah. just hang out yeah, absolutely <laughs> just hanging out just girl time hanging out well listen thank yeah, you exactly. again so much and um i want to let our listeners know uh where they can find information about your school and your program and all that great stuff oh, so i will include that in the text yeah. of the podcast um so. great so anyway, thank you so much. I'm so happy to see you. And I really do appreciate thank the wonderful you, work you're doing. You're pioneer lady. Same to you. Same to you. You are changing people's lives. And I think that is, you know, for both of us, um, an important part of what makes us want to get up every day. So thank you for the work you're doing. And thanks for inviting me to come talk to you about it. Um, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay, dear. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.